0: God' be with you. Thanks, Andrew. Are we still doing okay? We're still here. Can we keep going? Okay. One day you'll be like, "No." <laughs> what would you do if we got to the sermon part and this is an, on- an honest question you get to the sermon part, and it's like been a good hour. Like, it's just, it's nourishing, it's like, you've done church. And you get to the sermon part, and like, how you doing? You're still here, you're like, let's go. Because <laughs> that happens sometimes. Like, sometimes you get to a point in the service where you're like, that was enough. Like, God did her thing, and like, we're good. Would we end? Or would, like, would you be polite and, like, allow me to preach? You'd be polite, wouldn't you? Well, that's, that's very kind of you. I don't know if I want to get to that point where we have to navigate that, but let's just put it on our radar and be aware of it. Anyways, sermon time. As you've noticed, it's January. And as with every single January, just like they do every single year, linguists from around the world have gathered together to pick their word of the year. Maybe you've noticed it as you've scrolled through the phones and your news. You've seen that they've come up with this word of the year. Now, we don't know how the process works exactly. Uh, It's probably a very civilized and polite process. But in my imagination, it goes down a lot like that scene in Anchorman when all the different newsrooms fight it out to, to see who is the best newsroom. Two of you get the reference. I like it. Like I just picture like people like Noam Chomsky, you know, these pure pacifists, like fighting it out violently to see who gets to choose the word of the year, which is funny to me because they're linguists and you think they would talk it out. I had a good laugh at that earlier. I thought it was fun. <laughs> but however, they choose it, whether it's my way or their way. Um, I always look forward to this time of year and seeing the word they choose. Uh, because words matter. How we talk and how we think, it matters. Words are the building blocks of everything. This is why Abraham Heschel, the, the beautiful and important rabbi, said that words build worlds. This is why the ancient rabbis said words have a kavud, they've got a weight, a significance, a gravity. Just like in the beginning, when God spoke, the words we use, they create. They help us understand. They create the world around us. Which is why I look forward to this time of year. And not just because these words can help us reflect on the past year and get a sense of the things that we rumbled through. This this is the essence of the past year. But more importantly, because they give us a sense of Of what do we need to keep building? Where are we headed? What can we continue building in this world? Or even what do we need to take apart? What did we build this world that actually wasn't good and healthy? And what do we need to spend some time in the next year taking apart? And so today, as we leave one year and enter into another, we're going to look at the word they chose this word of the year, and they even call it the word of the decade. And taking Rabbi Heschel's words to heart, that words build worlds, we're going to ask two questions of this word. We're going to ask, why was it a part of 2019? And we're going to ask, what can it help us build within us and around us as we head into 2020? Are you with me? All right. All right. Yeah, let's do a prayer before we get into it. If you bow your heads, please. So God, as we head into this time where we ask to hear from you, uh, we ask that you speak. Take these words of mine and use them, work through them, underneath them, around them. May you give us a good and hope-filled word to chew on. Amen. So, The word of 2019 and even the whole decade is, next slide, they. This is the word that linguists gave us that not only defined the past year, but the past 10 years. Over the past 10 years, there's been a a pretty huge and systemic revolution in how we understand and talk about gender and sexuality. And in a lot of ways, this word captures that evolution because this has become the word uh, that people choose as a pronoun uh, when he or she doesn't really seem to fit for who they truly are and really are. Over the past 10 years, we've come to realize that just like everything else, gender and sexuality don't exist in a binary. There's no either or, there's no black and white, there's no this or that. But when it comes to understanding gender and sexuality, we've realized that it all exists on a spectrum. It's a bit more fluid than we previously thought. And over the past ten years, we've begun to make a bit more room to be a bit more diverse, a bit more expansive and inclusive and wondrous in how we understand ourselves, each other, and the world around us. And i got to say, I think this is just the coolest word they could have chosen to represent the past decade. Because think about all the other words they could have chosen. When it comes to nailing down what's the essence of the past decade, they would have so many words to choose from patriarchy, terrorism, climate crisis, genocide. All words that would aptly define what's been going on for the past decade. But they chose this one. How cool is that? That they chose a word that shows our capacity to grow, learn, and become and get better as a species instead of a word that shows just how good we are at taking this world apart. I think sometimes we need a reminder that there's good stuff going on in our world. Sometimes we need a reminder that we can actually have hope because we're pretty good at doing good things as we are at doing bad things. So I'm glad they chose this word. I think it does capture not only what it does about gender and sexuality, but it captures our ability as people to to learn and grow and become. So that's why they chose it. And now the second question. What can this word help us build? And I want to take some time to explore the, the issue underneath this word, or one of the issues underneath this word. Uh, one of the things that this word kind of points to. Because what is the underlining issue of the word they? What's the thing this word is getting at? What are we talking about when we talk about the pronoun they? We're talking about identity. When we talk about identity, we're talking about how we understand ourselves to be. We're talking about who we truly are. We're talking about the sum of all our parts. Our privilege, our histories, our values, our experiences, our hopes, our dreams, our intersections. That collection of things that make me, me, you, you, and us, us. Our identity is, is that encapsulation, and maybe even the word story works, of who we've been, who we are, and who we're becoming. Identity is a thing we talk about when we say, I am. I am Nick. I'm a straight white dude from Canada. I'm a fan of Jesus. I am an 8, 9, or 1 on the Enneagram. I don't know yet. I'm a partner, I'm a friend, I'm an eater of good food and a lover of music, I'm a really bad dodgeball player, but I love it, and my joy in life is helping people explore what it means to be human. That's my identity. What would you say? Who are you? If you had to say, I am dot, 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 how would you fill that in? What is at the core of your being? It's a big question, isn't it? It's got its own kavod. It's got a weight to it. Which makes sense. It should be a difficult question to answer because it's such a core part of our existence. Identity is everything. It's often the one thing that is truly and completely our own. It's how we see ourselves. It's how we want people to see us. It's the one thing, perhaps more than anything, that we want space to be made for. And now when we talk identity here in the church, when we look at this word from our tradition, there's one thing that we should add to this conversation. There's one thing that if we didn't talk about it when we talk about identity, we would need to call you all back to church and name it because it's that important. We can't talk about it without naming this one thing. There's one thing that we would insist on being a part of this conversation that we, we, that we would each add to our own little lists of I am. And that's the thing that will answer our second question. And we can find the answer to that second question in a story in the Bible. It's a story that everyone around the world is reading today in the world of church. It's a really popular story. It's a famous story. It's one of the few stories that we read every single year, always on this Sunday. And that's the story of Jesus' baptism. And the story goes that Jesus, well, he hasn't done much of anything yet. There's no stories about him at all before this. And we hear that Jesus has heard that his cousin John is baptizing people by the river Jordan. Now John, if you've heard of him, he's a really interesting, would be like a mild word. He's a really interesting guy. John has a famous origin story just like Jesus does. But John, he lives in the wilderness. He lives out in the desert. He wears camel hair. He eats locusts and honey. And he lives off in this world where no one is in control. There's no empire. There's no government. It's just him. And occasionally he comes into town to baptize people. And baptism back in Jesus' day, it was a, a sacrament, it was a ritual, And it was a ritual about repentance. And when we talk about repentance, what we're talking about is literally changing one's mind. The Greek word is metanoia. It means changing your mind. It's meant to get at this thing, this process we really go through, where we're going one way, and then we realize that that way is not good. That it's leading us out of life, not into it. And so we change our mind and we go back to where we started and we go a different direction. So it's not forgiveness. It's not saying, I'm sorry, God. But it's this complete difficult work of changing your mind and changing direction. And baptism is meant to kind of get at that sense of transformation, of changing your allegiances, changing the way you're going. You go down into the water, You wash off that old way, and then you rise up into a new way of living. And so John, he's at the he's at the River Jordan. He's baptizing people, and Jesus comes along, and Jesus thinks, you know what? I want to do that. And so he goes down to John, and John's like, what? You want me to baptize you? Like, no, you're you're the Christ. You're you're the Son of God. You don't need to be baptized. What are you talking about? And he puts up quite a fuss. But Jesus insists on it. He's like, no, I have to do this. I want to do this. Please baptize me. And John finally relents. And he takes Jesus down into the river. And Jesus goes under. Jesus comes up. And we're told how the skies part. And this dove kind of streams down from the heavens. And kind of is circling around Jesus' head. And this voice of God says, This is my son. He is beloved. I am so delighted in him. And that's the story. That's a story that, for some reason or other, the church makes us hear year after year after year. And so, of course, we have to ask why. What is it about this story that is so important that we're forced to hear it every single year? Because what is the thing about this story? What is so important about it? I think it is that this is not just a story about Jesus. And it's not just a story about baptism. But it's a story about everyone. And by everyone, we mean everyone. Not just people who've been baptized, not just people who believe in God, not just people who follow Jesus, but everyone. Who's it about? Who's it about? Huh? Everyone. Yes. And it's a story about everyone because it's a story about a foundational, non-negotiable, unrelenting, and irreversible truth about everyone. That our identities, who we are, who we've been, who we've becoming, begin and end with the fact that we are beloved. The truth will always come back to The truth that kind of grounds everything we are and everything we do is the truth that everyone is loved by God. The thing that we get to say as a church has to be a part of everyone's identity will always be I am loved by God. Now let's just take a moment and pull over here. Because this is the truth, if we're going to be really honest, We've kind of watered it down, haven't we? We sing about it every single Sunday. Your minister tells you every single Sunday. Some of you have word art up in your houses that say, I am loved by God. And you can't help but use that tone with it. Because we hear it so often. We hear it everywhere. It's almost become a platitude. And this happens with the stuff that we say a lot. This is what Dallas Willard is getting at when he says, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Because when you know something so well, you almost stop knowing it. It kind of loses its power, it loses its potency. But I think we need to rediscover just how powerful this truth is and how potent it is. And that's because of what love does. Because if love does anything, what does love do? Don't yell it out, just think about it for a second. If love does anything, what does love do? What does that love of God do? As Peter Rawlins would say, love calls us into existence. Love calls us into existence. And it calls us into existence by allowing and insisting. It doesn't just allow us to be us, giving us space and freedom to be who we are. It actually insists that we be who we are. Love doesn't demand we be a certain way. It doesn't demand that we dress up and pretend but allows and insists to us to be the people that we are. Hear that for a moment. And feel that for a moment. Our identities, all that stuff that you thought up when I asked, who are you, it is all grounded. Clothed, anointed, protected, empowered by love. It's love that allows us to be us and insists that we be us. Yeah, Nick, but no, beloved. Yeah, but what about beloved? Yeah, but I had to, I did the thing once where I got into trouble. Nope. Beloved. Our identities will always begin and end with the fact that we are beloved. No matter what, beloved, beloved, beloved. And that's beautiful, isn't it? That's amazing, that's so liberating. That no matter who we are, no matter what our story is, no matter what is on that list, That we are loved. And so therefore we can be ourselves. But here's where it gets even better. And by better, I mean more challenging. Uh, Who is this story about? Who? This isn't just our truth. This isn't just a truth for people who sit in pews. It's not just a truth for those who have similar identities to us, who look like us, who think like us, who dress like us. It's a truth for everyone. Who's it a truth for? There you go. Everyone is beloved. No matter who someone is, no matter how they identify, no matter what pronouns they use, God allows and insists that they be who they are. Which means what? What does that mean for those who identify different than we do? What's that mean for those who use weird and confusing words to describe themselves? Does that mean that they get, we get to demand they be a certain way? Does that mean we get to force them to fit in Does that mean we get to make them use language we're comfortable with? No. It means that we see them the same way we see ourselves. As beloved. And because love allows and insists, we allow and insist they be who they are. Because love, love would have it no other way. So what kind of world can we build as we head into 2020 then? As we unpack this word and think about identity and think about just how important it is that our identities begin and end with love. What kind of world does this call us to make as we head into 2020? A year from now, what kind of word will we name for the year that has been? The word belonging comes in my mind. Because if love does allow and insist, and everybody is loved, then everyone belongs. Not in the sense where like, come on in and you're welcome, but don't sit there. Sing this way, join this thing, and give this much money. But in the sense of, I see you as you want to be seen. And I am going to allow that, and I'm going to insist upon it because I know that you are loved. And so we make space for everyone and everyone, all of us and all of us, all our parts, all our identities because we know that love means we all belong. So maybe that's our word of 2020. Maybe that's the word that we need to keep on our back burners together as we head into the months that are coming. And so let's end with this. Let's give you some questions to take home. So if you have paper or phones to write stuff on, I, I encourage you to write these ones down. Because I think this could help us enter into the year in a new way. So first, a question for yourselves. How can you make room for yourself to belong? How can you make room for yourself to belong? What parts of your identities do you need to show a bit more love to? How can you make more space for yourself, where you can kind of just relax and let it all flow out? And then the second question, how can you make more space for others to belong? Maybe there's someone in your life that you just don't really get and you're making them jump through hoops because that's just how you think and how you work and you want them to be a particular way but deep down you know they can't how can you make more space for them to belong how can you honor their identity so take these questions with you and know that at the heart of both of them is the fact that we always come back to that grounds everything we are and everything we do. That we are all beloved. That everyone is beloved. Who's beloved? Everyone. So may you go from this place knowing that you are beloved. No matter who you are, no matter what your story is, that your identities begin and end with love. And so do everyone else's. And may you make space for you and for them to belong. And in a year from now, may we have a more generous, more spacious, more expansive world where everyone belongs and everyone has a place. And to that, all God's people say, Amen.